0: A note for listeners, this episode deals with the subject of suicide. If you are thinking of suicide or know someone who is, help is available nationwide by calling the Canada Suicide Prevention Service toll-free at 1-833-456-4566 24 hours a day or by texting 45645. And the text service is available from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. here in Saskatchewan.
1: I would say everybody has something in their heart that they're carrying, that is niggling, that is something that they can't wrap their mind around, that is something that they they can't reconcile with, that they're having difficulty with, and they just don't know how to get or, or crack that on the head.
0: Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. The voice you just heard belongs to Jill Cowan. She is the featured guest in Episode 5, Season 4 of YXE Underground. Jill Cowan and her family understand the devastating grief that comes with the death of a loved one by suicide. Her 16-year-old son, Max, died by suicide in 2015, and you will hear the impact it had on her and her family. But you will also discover how Jill used Max's death as motivation to help create a therapeutic program for people who have been in her shoes. We'll learn more about Jill Cowan and the Healing to the Max program in this episode of YXE Underground. During my years with CBC Radio in Saskatchewan, I spoke with a few families who had been impacted by suicide. I was always nervous when doing these stories because I, I didn't want to say anything that would upset a family or I wasn't really sure how far to push when, when asking questions. The families were always wonderful to speak with and I thanked them for it, but I was always a bit uncomfortable. I was feeling the same way when I reached out to Jill Cowan, co-creator of the Healing to the Max therapeutic program for survivors of a loss by suicide, to be on the podcast. She's doing such important work in our community, and I really wanted to share her story on the podcast, but I just wanted to be sure that I was telling her story with respect and kindness. I emailed Jill with my request, and she quickly wrote back to say yes. And then she said in the email, quote, I want to assure you, Eric, that you have free range to ask any questions you may have. You will not, quote, cause myself more pain by asking myself to speak about anything related to my experience of losing my 16-year-old son by suicide, the effects on myself, surviving children, husband, extended family and friends, and later the creation of our programs of hope and healing. Though I may express emotions during our discussion, I want you to know it is an honor as a bereaved person to have opportunities to speak in an honest and relatable way. Please structure your questions on anything you think will resonate most with your audience, and I'll participate openly. I know people will gain a lot by tuning in. I wanted to share this with you to give you a sense of how kind and empathetic Jill is. She has put her heart into the Healing to the Max program, and it is helping people in our community and beyond. Healing to the Max offers therapeutic grief supports for adults that have lost a child to suicide and for youth and teens ages 11 to 19 that have lost a family member or friend to suicide. Jill is the co-creator and one of the program's facilitators. This work is personal to Jill and she truly wants to help people who have experienced loss like she and her family has. We met a few weeks ago on a sunny but cold afternoon at Ancient Spirals Retreat just south of Saskatoon. It's a special place for Jill as it's where she held her first adult support group and she had the room set up as if we were hosting a group. The fireplace was on, the sun was shining through the south-facing windows, and round tables were set up throughout the room with art supplies and various activities relating to the program. I sat across from Jill in front of the fireplace and started by asking how it felt to host that first group.
1: It was really special. Um... It was exciting and, you know, as much as one can be excited about working in the capacity of grief support, but I was excited, which is to say that we were in the position to offer people support and, and, you know, if if they chose, um, if they were ready in their healing journey to connect with fellow survivors, we were able to provide that. It, It was just incredibly special for all of us.
0: I'm I'm so curious what what happens when when you get people to, together and, and I know things have obviously changed with COVID and we can get to that in, in a bit, but um, before that, when when people could, could come to this room that we're in right now, um, what what happens here, Jill?
1: Well, the program is led by a group of facilitators. I am one of them. I'm a parent survivor of loss by suicide. We also have um, my co-creator, wonderful Anjanette Corbet, who has her master's degree in social work. And when we lost um, Max by suicide, she um, was finishing her her master's degree. And she took everything that she could, any conference, any sort of specific training on um, loss by suicide. And so when we created this program, our hope was to create a community of support where people can come and they can they can connect with fellow survivors and we can meet on those terms of equality um, where we don't have to explain anything to one another. You know, you're just in this supportive, empathetic environment. And so I, I know I, I, I'm the creator of the program, so it's so... It's so hard for me to sound like I'm being, you know, I'm being genuine. But when I say that people come into this room and when we first meet them, it's the hardest thing for them. It's the hardest thing for them to walk through that door. Because nobody wants to, nobody wants to be in that position. Nobody wants to be, you know, have that, you know, literally it's a door in your face. It's their reality now. They are a bereaved by suicide person. And so when they sort of rip off that first band-aid and they come in, they're just met with such warmth and such caring and such a level of understanding that it sort of gives them a place where they now belong. You know, that community of belonging, it's so special. Speaking as a survivor, myself, One of the worst things for me was, and you know, you and I have met Eric, and and we've had a little brief chat, um, and and we have been communicating online back and forth with one another. I'm a pretty friendly person, and one fear, one sort of prevailing thought that I had when I was newly bereaved was, oh my gosh, I am never going to make a new friend. I am never, ever going to be, somebody is never going to want to meet me again. Nobody's ever going to want to know me. Where,
0: why why did you why did you think that? Like where did that come from?
1: Oh gosh, I mean I think just because it's so uncomfortable to to uh be a bereaved mother, you know, uh I remember for example after very recently after we lost our son by suicide um walking through my neighborhood my husband would tie my shoes for me and once a day he would make me go for a walk and I would be out in in my neighborhood and I, I didn't feel like talking to anyone but I would just be coming down the street that I had lived on for 17 years and I would just see the garage doors go down you know when I was people were out in their yards and they were working I just sort of that it was now uncomfortable. People didn't know what to say to me and I didn't know what to say to them. And the stigma of this type of loss, you know, that was another compounding factor. Um, For example, one lady I was working with at the time, you know, I had decided to make, uh, or I made the decision rather to go back to work quite quickly, uh, which was about two weeks after we, we lost our son. And she came to me, uh, on the first Monday back, and she said that uh, she had a brother who struggled with mental wellness, and that I was now her worst nightmare, and she could no longer work with me. You know, so um, I think some of it was not knowing how to navigate my world. I think a really big part of your identity as a parent is being that child's mother, that child's father. That's how you're known. Those children who are friends with your child identify you as Max's mom, you know? And they are not even aware you have a first name. And so your whole life and, and hopes and dreams are wrapped up in, 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 this, in this person who no longer exists. And that's really, really isolating for you know i think there's so many complex layers to this type of loss but one of them is a loss of identity a loss of self esteem a loss of direction i remember describing it in my early days as feeling like i'm a newborn a newborn baby i'm completely helpless but yet i'm in an adult body and i had no idea where to start and so when people You know, I I understand what I felt at the time, and I did a lot of journaling. I did a lot of writing. I started an online blog. You met my husband. He's from Scotland. And so there's an eight-hour time difference, sometimes seven, sometimes eight, uh, depending on their time change. But it was really hard for them to keep in touch with us and know how we were doing. So I thought if I, you know, document our experience and how we were, how we were coping, how we were getting on, they could just kind of go online, they could check in if they felt like it. It also was a method for me to look back, right? It was kind of like I knew I was never going to remember what those early days of bereavement were like. There was just no way. So I could write it down and I could go back and I could learn from this and perhaps that could help someone else somewhere down the line. So I know what it's like to be newly bereaved, and I know what it's like to have no idea which direction to go in. So when people walk into this room and I can, you know, I look at them and I I acknowledge how difficult it is that they've made this decision. They've made this decision to try out a new support option to meet and and connect with fellow survivors. I know for my husband in particular, and I'm, you know, and I want to talk about male grief as well and acknowledge how different that is for a man and how helpless he felt after losing our son, and um, how difficult it was for him to reach out for support because he felt like connecting with fellow survivors would be a step backwards he thought how could this possibly help me i have enough this is i have all the pain i can handle how is listening to other people you know talk about their experience with loss going to be beneficial to me and he he didn't want to for a long time and then we did meet with fellow survivors and you know he just kind of sat and he listened and then he started participating and interacting. And it ended up being something that was so relieving to him because he knew he wasn't alone. So I guess there's that element of solidarity, right? When you walk into this room, there's that element of I'm not different. And I don't have to, um, I don't have to explain myself. Everybody in this room absolutely is in my, my, my position. At one point in their lives... They are. They felt exactly what what I'm experiencing right now, and so there's that that beautiful solidarity when they walk into this room.
0: You you mentioned something that was a really lovely answer, by the way. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned something off the top in terms of the the community that you feel in this in this space, and so one one of the things that I think is a, a common theme in, in the podcast too is is that um, the people I'm fortunate to speak with are really big believers in community, but it takes a lot of work to create community. And obviously you're, you're very good at it. Um, I'm wondering how, how, do you, how did you go about um, creating this community? Like what, what, are, what were some of the intangible things that you needed to, to make this a safe space, to make this a space where, where people, like you said, felt welcomed and felt like they could just be themselves. Like that doesn't just happen. So how, no. how did you do it?
1: Well, it was um, such a long process, Eric. Oh, my goodness. So, Aunt Jeanette, Corbet, who I mentioned earlier, is the co-creator of Healing to the Max, and she also is the mother of my son Max's best friend. So she is the mother of Aiden, and um, Aiden and Max were best friends from from very, very young. I mean, they weren't even potty trained yet, and we grew up on the same street, so she was one of the neighbors who, um, thankfully, was not putting her garage door down when I walked by. And she would check in with me, and she would say, you know, how are you doing? You know, are you guys finding the correct forms of support? What are you doing for support? And so, the more and more I, I spoke with Anjanette, um, the more we identified that there was a gap in services for families like my own, you know, for parents, you know, my husband and myself, and, and for our surviving children. There was zero grief support groups, and, and I looked in Canada for my children so there, you know, there there was that gap in services, there were also long waiting lists. So we identified that there was a need for this type of support. And um, as I continued on my journey of healing and, you know, those conversations with Anjanet continued and we decided that this was something that we were going to do. We were going to go forward and we were going to connect with the right people. So. So we did have a lot of meetings, and uh, for myself, it was a really hard decision because my son was a teenager. He was 16, just over the age of 16 when he died. And I was so torn whether or not I would share his life in this public way. I didn't have his permission. I didn't have any way to get his permission. Uh, He's a beautiful young man. He... Uh, was so generous in every sort of way, and I know everybody says these wonderful things when someone passes. But he was such a beautiful, energetic, helpful, empathetic, compassionate young man, and and um, I knew that he was he was a doer, right? Like he just was such an active person in our community, and his goals were post-secondary to travel to underdeveloped countries and improve their infrastructure through, through um, you know, getting a degree in architecture. And he was going to, you know, help improve their standard of living. And I thought, okay, I don't have his skills. I do not have his talent for mathematics. And um, I certainly am past the point where I'm able to Well, we do travel globally, but, you know, for long extended periods. I cannot take on this as as sort of legacy work for my son. But this is something that I can do, right? I can help families like Max's family. And so, um, you know, and it was through our mutual friend, Joanne McGrath, who who was able to encourage me that, um, yes, this was a positive step forward and that this would be something that would be really well-received, And so I made that decision, yes, I would go ahead and and, um, do this work collaboratively with with my friend my beautiful friend Jeanette, and so we created the programs of hope and healing and so we have one um, intensive for parents that's a 12-week intensive we have one designed specifically for youth and teens ages 8 through 19 years that's an eight-week intensive which is where we meet once a week and we work on one complex aspect of this grieving process and we build on the week before um, you know, I can get into more of the the meat and the potatoes of our programs later, but um, yeah, it was just that gap in services that that uh, was really sort of something that became the creation of of these programs. Eric, you know, I had the means for you know getting private support for for getting those counselors. Um, But wait times are long and people aren't necessarily trained in this type of traumatic loss. And so when we did finally meet with a counselor, that wasn't necessarily a good match and it ended up being compounding. And when you're in crisis, it's a poor time to go window shopping for for support. And so we really felt that that call to create a meaningful place where survivors could come. You know, I mentioned that there was nothing for my surviving children, um, which is devastating to me. Uh, And one part that was compounding to my own grieving process was thinking about people who aren't in an urban setting, people who do not have the means for support, people in the northern communities, people who live, you know, remotely, people who live, on farms people who live in small farming communities people who live on those reserves in southern saskatchewan and i just couldn't reconcile with the fact that i had all the support i had mountains of support for my friends and family i could have gone anywhere in the city you know in the city center and and you know and i and i'm a diligent person i will find that correct form of support, but what about those people who don't have what I have? And that was really the, the, you know the, the motivating factor for creating these programs. and so going through the steps, yeah it's taken a lot it's taken a number of years. it's now I'm going into year seven of survivorship and uh, we're going we're, this January we're starting group number four. So, it's taken a lot. Um, I don't know if your listeners really want to listen to all the ins and outs of how you become a nonprofit organization, but it's incredibly convoluted and there's lots and lots of bumps in the road and uh, luckily, I have a beautiful team. so you know i'm I'm not a one woman sort of operation here I've wonderful, wonderful uh, people, co-facilitators. You met my friend, Loren, and and her husband, Wayne, my own husband, um, Bev Shedden, and, and Barb Clark. They're, they're also former participants who, who um, felt the call to do this type of work and who are now co-facilitators for, for Healing to the Max. And so, um, you know, as we grow, I, I think about where we came from, which was that place of, how are we even going to do this? Um, that's not an easy answer. It was <laughs> really, yeah, we really, um, we really had to talk to a lot of people and ask them if they wanted to, partici- to, to participate to to add to this program. And thankfully, we have gotten more yeses than nos. We have gotten a few nos, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> you um, you talked a little bit about the mm-hmm. in in your own journey, the noticing the gaps in service mm-hmm. and. And, you know, in my time as a reporter at CBC, I, I had the, the, I would say, the, the privilege of speaking with a few families who, um, who have experienced loss like you have. And, and that, was, that was something that they quickly mentioned to me. And, I, and I'm just curious, in, in your years, Jill, like, have, is that kind of a common theme that you hear from other families in terms of just perhaps being so grateful for this because there is a gap out there?
1: Oh, certainly. Oh goodness everyone who who connects with with our programs of hope and healing, there's certainly a beautiful um, beautiful expression of gratitude and and that we're so appreciative of. and so that um, in itself is is its own reward, right? You know it's just. A reason to keep going forward and doing those business end of things which are quite tedious to myself I would rather just do the facilitation side and work one-on-one with people and and um, but there is the, that business end of things that that one needs to take care of as well but um, yeah I mean right from the beginning when, when our son expressed that he thought he was struggling with a depression you know that was that was certainly something that that we faced as a family there were and and we know people we are family friends with people in that in that world in that community of of mental health of support you know and and we still were put on daunting wait lists and so is that a common theme i would say we meet with all types of survivors, Eric. We meet with people who have had challenges with the mental health system, absolutely. We also meet with people who have had absolutely no idea their loved one was struggling with suicidal ideation. So I think that to answer your question honestly, yes. I would say there's sort of that, that resounding residual, you know, there is a system that just isn't working and failing people like ours, like our own, our own loved ones, and and ourselves as survivors. Yes,
0: um, I'm I'm looking around this room, and you, you have been so gracious to to set this up. W- would this be kind of like a, a setup that, if I were coming to one of the sessions, this is what you're nodding your head. So yeah, yes. Um, so there there's tables set up, and then I see there's almost like would you say like workspaces or like is this sort of like feel free to get into the nuts and bolts like I'm oh, I'm I'm so curious like what what am, what all am I am I looking at like what would a, a person do if they if they came out to to one of your sessions
1: so our sessions uh are are weekly so once a week we meet and how it works is uh when we do meet in person and 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 today we are meeting in person in the space where we held our first parent intensive parent guardian and grandparent pardon me I want to I want to be clear that anyone who's in that parental role, and we've had all three, we've had parents, grandparents and guardians participate in our intensives, and so when you walk in you'll see tables that are set up and every week we'll give you a a work manual. So that's something that you get is, you know, our weekly sort of agenda of what we're going to address in that evening session. And uh, we have coffee and tea and and munchies out there all the time so participants can get whatever they need for their bodies. They can take a break whenever they need so they can go outside and get a breath of fresh air. There's washrooms available here. And so, um, and we do take body breaks, you know, throughout because we're doing really heavy work emotional work really heavy emotional work and then we do have a table that's set up with a whole bunch of things that look like you're walking into a kindergarten classroom but it's our arts and crafts sort of um, section so for example oh it's just sort of on the side of you there eric on our very first session you'll get a little sort of mason jar and an illuminary sort of a little light and you can pick out your loved one's favorite color or something that a color you associate with your loved one. And you can make a name tag for them. And you can decorate their jar and turn on their little light and have that sitting beside you as you're doing this this healing work. So we incorporate a lot of things like art therapy. And um, in every session, we do have a project that we work on, whether that's a visualization exercise or an art project, Um, just depending on what session we're in. I have a couple of favorites, but we do things with clay, we do things with, with canvas and paint. You do not have to have any level of art history, or I see you laughing because normally our men are very, like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, ladies? Yeah. But um, Brian's, you know, is very gracious in sharing his example. You know, my husband is what he has done for an art project as opposed to what I'll do. And and so that really puts people at ease, right? You know, there's a whole range of things that you can do to express um, in these these particular projects that we introduce. We also at the end of the session have uh, journal reflection questions. So we do teach journaling, and we do encourage that, and I know that can be really intimidating for some people, but it's not, you know, we're not sending you home saying, okay, write about your feelings. Because I think, and I don't want to categorize a particular gender, but men in particular are very, I would say, they have a, they have a high degree of trepidation when it comes to things like talking about their feelings, let alone writing about them. You know, uh, they're doers. They're fixers. They, you know, they'll see a hole in a fence and they'll say, right, I need a board, I need some nails, I need a particular hammer and I'm gonna go fix this. But what do you do if you don't have those tools? What if the problem, you're looking at it and you don't have those tools and you don't even know which tools to go to the store and buy? And you're looking at it and you're so helpless. I feel an incredible amount of compassion for our, for our male survivors, for our grand our grandpas, our our fathers, our stepfathers, you know, our uncles, you know, they just are so, so helpless in this situation. So when they come and they learn these techniques, it's just um, it's just like they're like, okay, right. I've come to the store and I've got my tools. And um, this crazy lady is telling me that this is how fall. I'm going to give it a whirl. But do you,
0: do you move. do you see those light bulb moments? Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, and they're brilliant and beautiful. And so, a weekly session. So we have our weekly group, right? And and uh, we also connect with our survivors through. Um, a private service that we set up like it's a messenger service so if everybody's using the Facebook Messenger we'll create um, a private group if everybody's using a snapchat and that's really popular for the youth and teens right so we'll use that as our messenger so that everybody stays connected and we can check in with you so halfway through the week you know one of our facilitators um, We'll check in with our participants and say, how's your week going? Is there anything that you're struggling with? How can we help you? And so, um, you know, we do have the we do have our binder and it's on my lap. It's been on my lap the whole time because I love our program so much. But, um, you know, where we do have our set agenda, it's the creation of that community of support that is so vital, right, where we can. We can offer that to our participants. They they have that that connectivity, and they can call on one of us at any point. And if something comes up, we're going to be there for them.
0: That, that's an interesting point because it's not only I I would assume anyways, um, people that that come to your to your groups. It's it's not only looking to you as a support person, but now you're like you said you're you're a part of this community. And it, 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 do you see those relationships forming between? You know, one father here and a father there, or grandpa here, grandpa there. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes. My husband has a has a group of men that he meets with regularly, and um, this has been going on for years, and and it grows, right? So the men go off and they do their thing, and sometimes we meet as families together. This recent group that we had um, online, we offered via Zoom because of COVID protocols. And and for safety, we had a lot of people join us from the states. We had a participant from Virginia. We had one from Arizona, one from um, Vancouver, Washington. So we had, yeah, those sets of parents join us remotely. And that was really beautiful. And at the end of that that group, one of our participants, um, she's here in Saskatoon, she said, wouldn't it be great if we could all meet in person someday? and then the September long weekend everybody came and we met and so uh, Brian and I opened our home and we had a few meals there we had some backyard fires we went out to Cranberry Flats we did some hiking Uh, we did some uh, just really really beautiful healing activities together Uh, but we also just kind of hung out as friends and I know we're going to be lifelong friends What,
0: what was that like because it's it's one thing to to say you know oh yeah let's get together someday but lots of people say that and it never happens and yet you've got people from across north america and they came to saskatoon in september
1: it was that mic drop moment you know and we had this one um participant and i i know she wouldn't mind myself sharing this with you she she lost her husband by suicide 17 years ago and then she was newly bereaved again. She lost her one and only beautiful, beloved son by suicide. And, and um, I don't know how she became connected with our program, but she gave me a call and she said, I need help. And I said, that's OK. You know, we're, we're here for you. And she participated in this, this last intensive. So she went from a place of, of uh, struggling with her own suicidal ideation, which is incredibly common, for a bereaved parent of this type of loss. I certainly experienced it myself. And so um, when she said that, when she said, wouldn't it be great if we could all get together and to hear her express that she was thinking about the future. She was making a plan for, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? You know, we just sort of, uh, we all kind of debrief as facilitators after, you know, after our participants have left that, that virtual room, we stay on and we have a chat. And I just sort of sat back and I made that motion. I'm like, that's our mic drop moment. You know, that woman who was so unsure whether she would even survive to make a plan for the future was just such a beautiful, beautiful validation that we're going in the right direction with this program yeah
0: with and and my apologies if this is kind of a silly question but like um is every is everyone coming to the program are are they are they looking for are they looking for the same thing in terms of I, like is it as simple as saying I just want to I want to feel better or are they looking for like specifically to work on on a few things or because they I know like and like you've said a, a, a couple of times like this is it's a lifelong it's like yeah it, but obviously you know maybe people want to have some goals within the 12 weeks that they do um like but i'm just so curious like what how do people uh approach this and, and this is so this is so out of my comfort zone that you know i i i don't know i'm not asking the question properly but hopefully yes, you, you can, okay
1: and i totally understand <laughs> what you're saying and I, you know, I said it when you first walked in the door today. Thank you so much for, for um, you know, being brave enough to make yourself vulnerable in this way because this isn't your world. And I certainly wouldn't be here if I had a choice, you know. So thank you so much for your bravery today. Um, I would say everybody shows up in, in different states. Our men are usually very stoic. They're very sort of, I'm here to support her right? I'm here, but I'm going to support her. And uh, to see them sort of, you know, open up and share their own sort of individual experience and their own feelings is a really magical thing. But um, everybody does have their, I would say, are at different levels or different stages or different phases. I wouldn't say levels or stages is correct. I would say uh, more what is fitting is they're at different levels of healing. We have people who have joined us as new as four weeks into their bereavement journey, and we've had survivors as long as seven years join us. Who you know, and that's our our beautiful Bev Shedden, who's now a, a valuable, um, amazing facilitator of this program. She had lost her beautiful son Jamie uh, seven years prior to taking our our parent intensive, and so everybody's at a different stage, and. So I would say everybody has something in their heart that they're carrying, that is niggling that is something that they can't wrap their mind around that is something that they they can't reconcile with that they're having difficulty with and they just don't know how to get or or crack that on the head right. And so, to identify all those different complex things, this would be a whole nother podcast. But um, <laughs> you know, uh, I would say yes. That's a really valid question. Everybody has their own goals uh, within the healing journeys, and um, you know, this is a very comprehensive program. There, we don't leave any stone unturned. If it is something that I thought of, or I struggled with, or um, you know, and, and even Anjanette, who's, who's the professional connected with this program, even she said, are you sure you want to put that in, Jill? That's, that's going to be rough on them. And I said, it is going to be rough on them. But if they don't do it within this supportive, empathetic environment with, you know, the support of the facilitators, it's going to come up at some point. It could be months from now. It could be years from now but then they're going to be alone. May
0: I ask an example? Like, what, what a rough thing might be?
1: I think one of the the roughest things that I have put in this program is the unit where we speak on everything that is known about our loved one's death. Everything that is known. Not things that we've made up in our mind. Not things that, you know our shame and guilt have maybe added in, but every factual thing that we know about our loved one. And I say loved one because in this program, we teach it through the lens of narrative therapy, which is to say that we encourage not not that traditional concept of closure, like you would in grief, right? There's those five stages of grief, which were identified by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know, and we all know them, right? And then that bespeaks of, okay, right, you get to that stage of acceptance and it's over. And then you just have this you know, beautiful life where you live again. And where I do think you do have a life where you live again, I do think that that's something that happens. I do think that grief is something that you're going to take with you. It doesn't mean to say that it's going to look the same or be the same. but So narrative therapy approaches it, from a different angle and it says, what if we don't have to say goodbye? What if we can say hello again? And so we have this concept where we um, reinforce that loving, enduring, everlasting connection to our loved one. We don't have to say goodbye. We can accept their death. As a mother, there is absolutely no part of me on a very basic cellular level that doesn't understand my son has died. I feel that. Whether I'm asleep or whether whether I'm awake, my body knows that he's not here. And so I think when people think that you have to have closure, they think, oh, she just can't accept it. There's that, she can't accept that. Believe me, there is on no level any misunderstanding or misconception that my son is dead in the physical form and that I will also make my physical transition. I'm an organic being, we all are. And so there's no, there's no delusion there. But in this approach, through a narrative approach, you can say, but what if, what if I bring that person with me into that acceptance phase? And so we say love one instead of loved one, past tense, because we don't believe that love ends. And we don't feel that, you know. So, um, and there's no reason for us to to say goodbye to someone who we love, and especially as parents, more than our own lives. There's no reason for that. And so it's a brand new approach to grief and loss. So um, I think that has been a really healing, beautiful, and it just creates such a wonderful foundation for these programs of hope and healing and narrative therapy was was um, first introduced by Michael two two social workers Michael White from Australia and David Epstein who's who's a Canadian actually he was born in in uh, Peterborough I believe Peterborough uh, Ontario Ontario so he's originally from Canada he lives in New Zealand right now and so they recognize those five stages of grief that we're all so familiar with. But when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was doing her work, she based that on a patient who was terminally ill. She, and it's important work, and it's so valuable. And all those things that she talks about, you know, the depression phase, the, the um, you know, you go into bargaining, all those things, I certainly did experience them, but there was no particular order. And on any given day, I could feel in any given moment like I was experiencing a myriad of those stages, stages, right? It's not one through five. And it wasn't even based on somebody who was bereaved. It was based on someone who was accepting a terminal diagnosis. So this is, a, this is a brand new sort of approach and it's been really, really amazing to watch our participants respond to it. Really beautiful.
0: You are listening to episode five, season four of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson and my guest is Jill Cowan of the Healing to the Max Therapeutic Programme. You can follow and listen to YXE Underground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, yxeunderground.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. And you can also follow YXE Underground on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, which is where you'll see some lovely photos of jail taken by Saskatoon photographer Molly Schakowsky. Don't forget to leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Healing to the Max started small, but as you heard Jill mention, there are people from across North America now enrolling in the program. This is exciting to Jill as she has big plans for the program, which includes making connections with Indigenous communities in northern Saskatchewan and within Saskatoon schools. In the last part of our conversation, Jill shares her goals for Healing to the Max and why she's okay with feeling exhausted after a therapy session. We pick up our conversation with Jill sharing some of her favorite aspects of the program, which just so happened to tap into a person's creativity.
1: I don't think it's a bad day when you can do something creative and when you can make something, and especially for a person who's in a bereaved state. Um, I would, and I sort of, and I don't think that this is uh, a term that is really even correct, but um, I would call it acute grief where you're, and and that could be when you're newly bereaved, that could be 10 years down the road. It just doesn't matter, right? If you're in an acute state of grief, I think creating something is really amazing. Some of my favorite projects would be um, maybe, oh, I love the painting that we do, which is the, if you could express what um, grief and joy could look like hand in hand, What would that look like? And so we've gotten some really beautiful results, you know, um, and everybody's is so unique, and that's what I love because um, I love to draw and copy things, and I'm really good at copying things and, and restoring things that other people have made, and I can, you know, I can do that really easily, but original creativity is something that I struggle with. So to see everybody have some different... Perspective on that—that's a really great one. though. what if you could paint a picture or draw a picture of what grief and joy could look like hand in hand? What would that look like? That—that's a really favorite one of mine. And another favorite project of mine is the masks we wear project, which is where we do um, a project, um, and and it could be just on a simple paper plate or you know. Um, whatever we have available uh, for that particular session but you draw or or paint or or markers or how whatever medium you want to use you do the face of the you know what you're showing to the outside world the face you're showing to the outside world versus on the reverse side of that paper plate what you actually feel on the inside and then how do we get those two to look more similar and then we have you know a follow-up with every art project that we do right and one of the follow-ups we have a lot of short answer questions with the mask we wear and those questions you know are everything from you know when is it helpful for us to wear a mask who are we protecting when we wear our masks you know what would it feel like if we were able to show the world what we look like on the inside as opposed to that out that outer look so you know there's always follow-up to it. it's not like oh make something pretty and that's it yeah. you know we really do get into it so yeah in a comprehensive really profound way okay. yeah
0: um may, may I ask like it, it is it is so clear that how empathetic and caring a person you are um and and I'm wondering with with this work that you do is it is it invigorating or can it be exhausting at times? Or can it be both, like at the at the same time? Because it, it it's clear you've put your heart and soul into this, um, and it's it's intense. Um, I'm I'm just for I guess for your like. How do you do how do you do this? <laughs> oh,
1: that's such a lovely question. And thank you so much. And I just, I mean, when I'm looking at you, I can almost see Anne Jeanette looking at me, right? Because she is the professional and she's always like, Jill, she's always giving me the check-ins. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. Are you gonna be taking some time off over the holidays? And so my answer to that is um where I do feel tired, right? I mean, I do feel that that fatigue uh, from, from putting on something of this magnitude, of this level, uh, I would say it's just such a beautiful fatigue and so welcoming and not something that's draining or taking away or negative in any sort of way. It's a good tired. I would liken it to, you know our forefathers who came and worked the land and they, they, they had a successful crop and they were going to survive that winter because they had that bounty and, and, and they were tired because they did that work, but it was necessary. And so I think that's how I would explain it. Yes, I'm, really super tired. (laughs) Such a good tired, such a beautiful tired. And um, I'm so grateful for that fatigue. And so I do have so many beautiful people around me. You met a herd of my friends who just came out on a Sunday to help me today. And I have people who are looking out for me. My own parents are blessedly still alive and, and so supportive. And my three brothers, you know, my own children, my niece, my husband, and, and uh, everyone who's connected to this program in a professional way is always checking in. And I always do get that slap on the wrist if I'm going too far. <laughs> it's time for you to book that trip to Mexico or whatever. You know, yes. I am absolutely good at being really hands-on and, and full-on, and I'm completely devoted and dedicated. And then I'm really good at turning off as well and enjoying myself. So I think I have a good balance.
0: And you mentioned your support team too. I'm mm-hmm. I am curious um, mm-hmm. what what your what your two children think of of the work that you do and 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 why it is so important to you. What what do they think?
1: I think that they are grateful that there's a form of support available that was not available for them. That is something that they have both uh, been very proud of Um, and I think that they are they're really they're young adults right now and they're really engrossed in their their education and their own journeys right now but they're certainly cheering from the sidelines you know loudly and so so um, so supportive and you know give a give a lot of love that this is a part of their, their you know beloved brother's legacy now. You know that's certainly something that is really special for them. I don't think that this is the only thing that's going on uh, You know to honor the, the life and legacy of, of Max. He had a really big life in his 16 years, and he, a lot of people cared about him. So there's definitely other things going on, but this is a beautiful sort of um, foil to his, his legacy, and I think they're really proud, really proud.
0: Um, I I like the word legacy I I think there's it's such a it's a powerful word and I think it has such a a great connotation to it because yeah I I think you're you're leaving your mark on on the world and so I I like that you've mentioned that several times so um, yeah I yeah I'm curious maybe this sort of ties in in terms of, of of the mark you're hoping to leave like how I, I know um, COVID has obviously changed things a little bit for the program, but like you said, you've told that wonderful story about how you've connected with people across North America now mm-hmm. and then you're, you're, you're hosting groups because they're getting together and that wouldn't have happened yeah. before. Um, how, how would you like to see this program continue to grow, Jill?
1: Well, there's several different ways that it's growing. Um, one of our facilitators is, has been invited to a, a beautiful conference in Arizona this summer, and she she's going to be speaking on behalf of our program down there, for um, with the uh, I believe it's the uh, Helping Parents Heal chapter that's hosting a, a, a conference down in America, and uh, David Kessler is going to be attending. He is. A, uh, really really resolute sort of relevant right now grief expert in the world and so she's been invited to that conference so she'll be going there and Jeanette and I are hopeful to copyright the program and and we're hopeful to have it translated into different languages we do have some interest in Europe and beyond Um, actually we've had people interested as, as far as China um, Australia, you, you, there's been some interest globally as well. So we are hopeful to get you know the funding so that we can hire a beautiful lawyer who will um, copyright the program for us for, for peanuts and um, you know that, that's definitely a goal of ours. Another incredibly and right from the beginning uh, one of my major major goals of creating this and and, and you know really making that leap and, and, and making our, ourselves public in this way was the hope to to go to our northern communities. So Anjanette uh, and I have been in talks with the FSIN a couple of times, and we've had some interest from, from different First Nations. Red Fesson First Nation is one who's hopeful to do a pilot project. Of course, COVID has changed things. Um, for us right now but we're definitely definitely going to uh, want to teach this program and make it available to the uh, mental health professionals in those communities so that when need arises they can run an intensive you know maybe they do it once um, once a week or once a week like we do it for 12 consecutive weeks or maybe they you know uh shorten the timelines and do it you know three times a week or, or whatever works in their community so our hope is is to be able to to do a lot of things like that and 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 to put on healing events and have retreat weekends and we've been in contact with a few other um people within the the grief support community throughout the province and and we're hopeful to collaborate with them and and Uh, we have some interest in in Regina and well really there hasn't been a community that hasn't reached out in in our own province but we are definitely looking beyond that and and um, prevention is also another suicide prevention is another area we're incredibly interested in in facilitating a, a project a meaningful project and if anybody is listening to this and you work on the school board Uh, You will know how to get in touch with me, and I will love to talk to you uh, because I have some beautiful ideas uh, that we could bring into the high school level for for Mental Health Week, and that's in May. And so, you know, I definitely have some some goals on how the program will go. Um, You know, going forward, right now we're going into our next parent intensive. That's going to start mid-January. Uh, we're taking registrations right now. Uh, we will run a youth and teen group again in the spring, and uh, we'll see if uh, we can work on that beautiful project of prevention that I have cooked up in my in my Jill brain for <laughs> the, the mental health week at the school level. Um, I think if you approach anything from the angle of love and support and compassion and, you know, awareness in general sort of, you know, um, comprehensive, you know, goodness, wanting people to be able to find those, those outlets of support that they need. And normalizing things like saying the word suicide. Saying the word suicide is not going to make your children die by suicide. What it will do for someone with struggling with suicidal ideation, whether they're a young person or an older person, It is going to be relieving for them to be able to speak about these thoughts that they're having. And in our program, we always refer to them as sneaky, slimy, suicidal thoughts. They're convincing the person that one of two things, either A, this is the best option, or B, this is the only option. And they're lying to you. And so I think a lot of our young people in particular, don't know where to start when they're struggling they don't know where to go for help they don't know how to ask for help and a lot of the help we get is going to take you a step backwards we talked a little bit about that we sort of briefly touched that in the beginning of our our conversation today Um, the system is a little disjointed, I have my own sort of thoughts on this. I do believe that if anybody was struggling with life or death, a healthcare professional would be empathetic to that and want to get them the help that they need. But a lot of the times their hands are tied. You know, lack of funding, lack of resources, lack of staff, lack of people interested in living in this remote part of the world. You know, all these different types of problems and challenges we face. Um, And a lot of times the young people don't have the language either to even know where to begin. And sometimes, you know, if we're clinging to our support network at home and we're barely hanging on, the thought of going to the hospital is going to compound that. Now I'm going to be separated from my friends, who I like to hang out with during the day. Now I'm going to have to leave my TV and my gaming system behind because that's been working for me to help me fall asleep at night. I'm not going to have those things. I'll just try to tough it out. And that's when we get to the crisis point. And I think it's really important that our program, you know, now that we do have this platform and we are connecting with families, just like my very own, a large thing that we're noticing is people do have that, that passion to work in, in the uh, area of advocacy the area of prevention. And so it would be really beautiful if we could come together and have something that was really powerful and really meaningful instead of just wear your pink shirt day, you know, kind of, which is a one-day thing and everybody loves to participate and I love it and I love Bell Let's Talk Day and I love all these initiatives that are coming out and, and um, helping to change the outdated stigma, the outdated narrative around mental health. But one, every day, you know, 10 Canadians will die by suicide. 10 a day. By the time this podcast is finished airing, 300 Canadians will have died by suicide. And I think that for families like my own, you can heal and you can grieve, and you will continue to grieve your entire life, but they want to take that next step to make sure that there isn't going to be another family like their own and so I think it's really important for us as a community and as a complete support program to be able to offer that option to families so I have some ideas Eric.
0: You mentioned like the 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 Jill brain, and um, I I feel very grateful for the opportunity to learn um, a little bit about the Jill brain, um, but to 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 speak with you today, uh, um, and you were very, ever since I reached out to you via email, you've been so kind and empathetic and and caring towards me and making me feel comfortable, when really it's like as the interviewer, that's my job f- to do that for you. So, um, I, I, I just want to say thank you, um, for taking the time to speak with me today. And, and I think the work that you and, and your team are doing is, is so important. And I, and I love that you, how you ended with talking about av- advocacy and wanting to, you know, what's one thing, like you said, the uh, pink shirt day and bell, let talk to Those are great days, but what about all the other days? And let's, let's go and do things. And, um, and, and, spending, you know, a couple hours with you today, like, you're going to get stuff done, so. (laughs) You're going to
1: get stuff done. It might not, uh, it might not be linear, and it might not be neat and tidy, but it's definitely happening, so, and I'm not opposed to people saying no, I just, you know, I say thank you, and I move on, and I keep going until someone says yes, so, yeah, it's definitely, definitely going in a beautiful direction, and I, yeah, as you say, I have that beautiful team of support as well.
0: Jill, thank you so much for this. I I really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to Episode 5, Season 4 of YXE Underground. My name is Eric Anderson. I host, produce, and edit this local independent podcast. Thank you again to Jill Cowan for being so generous with your time and appearing on the podcast. And I strongly encourage you to visit healingtothemax.org to learn more about the program. And you can also find the program on Facebook. You can follow and listen to YXE Underground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YXEUnderground.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow YXE Underground on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, which is where you'll see some wonderful photos of Jill taken by my friend and Saskatoon photographer, Molly Schakowsky. Don't forget to leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. I want to thank the team at Danger Dynamite for maintaining the website, and I also want to thank my cousin Andrew Dixon for creating the original theme music. Before I go, I would like to acknowledge that this interview was recorded on Treaty 6 territory and the traditional homeland of the Métis. YXE Underground is a production of the Salt Hammer Production Company. My name is Eric Anderson. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon, Saskatoon.